Bring the, the Lord in the, the preaching and hearing of the word, but also in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper today, and we will have a confession of sin during the service, uh, so we have some time for examination and to prepare for the table. Uh, but before we begin, uh, just a few announcements to point out. We had a great rally day this, this morning. Thankful for everyone who participated in that. Thankful for all of our Sunday school teachers, all of our volunteers, and of course all of our children as well. Uh, in terms of announcements, there's lots of activities for the ladies coming up. You can read about those in your bulletins. Also, beginning Sunday, September 3rd, that's next Sunday, uh, our Sunday night service is going to be at 5 o'clock rather than 6 o'clock, so uh, just take note of that. Also, midweek here will begin on September 13th, so we just have two and a half weeks until that begins, and we're all looking forward to that. And if you could be praying that progress would be made on the the work being done in the Family Life Building, we'd like to move in there. So uh, I ask for your prayers in that regard. That's all that I have by way of announcements. Again, welcome. We're glad that you're with us on this Lord's Day. Now let's take a few moments to prepare our hearts to worship the living and true God. Would you please stand for our call to worship from Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, God is calling us to worship him. This is his word. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let's worship this God who invites us to come to him and worship with him 392, O Day of Rest and Gladness, hymn 392.
Pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are here to worship you. You have called us into your presence to give you what is your due, what you are worthy of, which is your praise and honor and glory. So God, help us to worship you this morning through your spirit. Would you fill this place? Would you guide us to the table? Would you guide us to the throne? Would you guide us to overflowing grace and mercy as we approach you this morning? Be with us, we pray, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm doing this so out of order, and I'm realizing it now, but you may be seated. <laughs> well, this liturgy, uh, this order of service that you have in your bulletin, as you can see, there's some changes to it. And as we approach and prepare for the Lord's table after the message this morning, um, it is a time in which we're instructed by God to examine ourselves. And so there's no better way to lead into hearing the gospel preached and then receiving the gospel and the signs of the bread and the juice than to confess our sins, to have a time of confession and to hear God's assurance of pardon that we are forgiven in him. So that by the time we end this service, we are leaving with hearts that are full of God's grace, of the gospel, and we are ready uh, to enjoy his rest. So um, we have a corporate confession of sin in which we're going to read together, and then we're going to go into a silent time of confession where you have an opportunity to go before God personally and silently to confess your sins to him in expectation of his forgiveness. So let's read the corporate confession of sin together. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open to us a future in which we can be changed. And grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image. Through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen. Let's go before God in silent prayer. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us, sinners. We pray, amen. Would you hear the assurance of pardon from 1 John chapter 1? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is good news. Uh, and I'll end there.
Please pray with me. God, even as we give with mixed motives because we are sinners, you have assured us that you will bless our giving. So God, use our tithes and offerings for your kingdom, your kingdom work. And would you bless this church through these gifts? And would you continue to equip us and to uh, sustain us and to give us what we need uh, as we live for you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would remain standing, we'll continue to worship with hymn 295, which is crown him with many crowns, hymn 295. I'd invite you all to turn with me to the second chapter of the book of Genesis. We're three weeks into a series that I've entitled Re-Enchanting the World as we're looking at the book of Genesis. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 this morning. Before we do, let me pray for us. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Um, Would you grant us your spirit today that you might enlighten and illumine our minds and hearts and eyes to behold and to receive and to rejoice in the glory of God and the Lord Jesus Christ as he is revealed in the scriptures. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Genesis 2, beginning in verse One, this is the word of God. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, 
because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And this ends the reading of God's word. So, as I said, our series is called Reenchanting the World. I also think we need a reenchantment, so to speak, of the Sabbath and of what Sabbath rest is. When you think of the Sabbath, maybe you think of restaurants being closed on Sunday, you think of blue laws, maybe you think about lists of what it's okay to do and what it's not okay to do on Sunday. There was an old blue song that I heard a cover of years ago that was called Ain't It a Shame to Go Fishing on a Sunday. Maybe that's the sort of thing that comes to your mind when you think about the Sabbath. But when Jesus shows up in the New Testament, he is actually criticized by the Pharisees and religious leaders for allowing his disciples to do too much on the Sabbath. So the Sabbath has to be about more than just what you can and can't do. Eugene Peterson has a, uh, a quote where he talks about the, the religious impulse of, of the Pharisee, and he says this, Imagine yourself moving into a house with a huge picture window overlooking a grand view across a wide expanse of water enclosed by a range of snow-capped mountains. Several times a day you interrupt your work and stand before this window to take in the majesty and the beauty. One afternoon, you notice some bird droppings on the window glass. So you get a bucket of water and a towel and clean it. Another day, visitors come with a tribe of small, dirty-fingered children. The moment they leave, you see all the smudge marks on the glass. They're hardly out of the door before you have the bucket out again. Keeping that window clean develops into an obsessive-compulsive neurosis. You accumulate ladders and buckets and squeegees. You construct scaffolding both inside and out to make it possible to get to all the difficult corners and heights. You have the cleanest window in North America. But now it's been years since you looked through it. You've become a Pharisee. His point is that the impulse of the Pharisee is to sap the joy out of everything. To become so obsessed with keeping the window clean that you never look through it at the snow-capped mountains. And see, we are meant not to just look at the Sabbath. It's a list of rules. It's a list of what we can do and what we can't do. We're actually meant to look through the Sabbath at the snow-capped mountains as something much greater than itself. Well, the question is, what's that something else that we're meant to look at as we look through the Sabbath? Three points to get us there. Let's talk about the Sabbath. What is it, how we've messed it up, and how we can get it right? Number one, what is the Sabbath? Well, Sabbath is the Hebrew word that means rest. Going back to uh, our passage If you go one verse prior to what we read in verse 31, the last verse of chapter 1, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day, then verse 1 of chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So when we talk about the Sabbath... First and foremost, it refers to God on the final day of creation, having completed all of his work. It refers to him resting. So the next question is, logically, what does it mean that God rested? Do we really believe that he took a nap? Uh, Do we really believe that he ceased all activity? The all-powerful, all-knowing God just ceased from all activity. No, the clue to what it means that God rested is actually in verse 31, which we read when, when God looks at all of his creation and says, Behold, it was very good. So John Owen, 17th century Puritan author, in his commentary on Hebrews 3 and 4, which is really a commentary on what the Sabbath is, this is what he says. The expression of God's rest on the seventh day 
is of a moral and not a natural signification. For it consists in the satisfaction and complacency that God took in his works as effects of his goodness, power, and wisdom, disposed in the order and unto the ends that he ordained. Hence, as it is said, that upon the finishing of his works, he looked on everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That is, he was satisfied in his works and their disposal, and pronounced concerning them that they became, they were becoming of his infinite wisdom and power. All right, unpack that a little bit. What Owen is saying is, he says, first, God's rest is moral, not natural, not physical. What he means by that is, it's not that God took a nap, but rather that when he looked at the work of his hands, what he had done in the six days of creation, he looked at it and said, it's good. Morally, it's perfect. It's exactly what I designed it to be. So the idea of rest in Genesis 2 has little to do with inactivity. God never stopped being active. It means God's work of creation was perfect and complete, and therefore God was completely and perfectly satisfied in what he had done. Now Owen adds another point, commenting on the verse Exodus 31.17, which again is Moses writing about the Sabbath. It says this, In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested, and was refreshed. So that is, he took, this is Owen, great complacency God did and what he had done as that which was suited unto the end aimed at, namely the expression of his greatness, goodness, and wisdom unto his rational creatures. So in a nutshell, and we're summarizing, uh, biblical rest as grounded in Genesis 2 is being able, as God did, to look back at your work and be completely satisfied and refreshed in the knowledge that it is perfect. It is to enjoy the repose, uh, the tranquility of being able to look at your work and say, Behold, it is very good. You know what it's like after a hard day's work. That's a hard day's work, no major mess-ups, all the kids and grandkids are healthy, everything's good, I'm tired, I made my living honestly. That's when you can lay your down, head down on a pillow and rest easy, right? And that's the picture of the Sabbath, that God had done his work perfectly. And so he was refreshed and rested in it. So that's what the Sabbath is. Number two, here's how we mess it up. In our passage, after God sets apart the Sabbath day and makes it holy... Moses retells the story of creation with a new emphasis on how God created man and woman and what God, de what God demanded from them. So the story goes, chapter 1, creation, beginning of chapter 2, Sabbath, and then the rest of chapter 2, creation, leading in specifically the pinnacle of the creation of man, followed in chapter 3 by the fall of man. One commentator I read this past week called the Sabbath the climax of creation. Uh, but I don't know that it's, most historically have said man and woman are the climax of creation. Their creation is. But the Sabbath is more like a resolution to the story. It's, the Sabbath is what man and woman are being created for. They're being created to enjoy eternal Sabbath. And one of the main themes in the Bible about the Sabbath is that humans were created to share or enter into God's rest. You see this most clearly in Psalm 95, with, which is kind of God's commentary on the children of Israel and how they failed to meet God's standards as they grumbled in the wilderness for 40 years. And so Psalm 95:11 says, God says to the people of Israel, Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And we, like the Israelites, were created to enter into the rest of God. That is, his perfect satisfaction, perfect complacency, perfect repose. But like Adam and Eve, like Israel, through our sin, we keep messing it up. In Owen's commentary on Hebrews, he makes the point that the Sabbath day was like a sacrament. A sacrament is a sign and it's a seal of God's promises. And so the Sabbath itself was a sign and seal of a promise God made to Adam in creation. 
The Westminster Confession talks about the covenant of works that God made with Adam. The covenant of works was essentially, Adam, if you obey me perfectly, do this and live. You will have eternal life. You will enter into my rest, into the blessed Sabbath of... You know, people don't understand this, I, th I think, often. But Adam was created without sin. But he was not created as everything he was meant to be. He did not have a positive righteousness of his own, whereby he had, he had obeyed God and earned some sort of standing before him. Rather, he was created without sin, but God, as the way uh, the Reformers and the way the Puritans explained it was, Adam was under a, prob a probationary period where he was being tested. And, of course, he was commanded not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was also commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The Sabbath is already here, grounded in the days of creation, going all the way back to the time of Adam and Eve. And so the covenant of works that God commanded of Adam was essentially, Adam, you obey me and you'll live eternally. You disobey me and you will die. And to summarize John Owen, he says, the life that God promised to Adam was a life of eternal Sabbath, a life of rest, a life of perfect morality, a life of no regrets, no pains, no sleepless nights, no tears. But Adam had to go through this probation. He had to obey for whatever period of time God ordained in order for him to enter that rest. And he failed. He sinned against God by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when he failed and fell, we all failed and fell with him because he was our representative before God. And so as a result, the entire human race from Adam onward, has not been able to look at our lives and say, behold, it was very good. And so we can't find rest. And everybody has a sense of this. There's, there's a restlessness about humanity. There's a book I enjoy called The Opposite of Loneliness by Marina Keegan. She was a Yale student, and many of her essays uh, were collected into this book. And she has a, a part in one essay where she's talking about getting ready to get out of college and go out into the workforce and make a name and make a living for herself. And uh, she's reflecting back on her college career. And she says this, We are our own hardest critics, and it's easy to let ourselves down. Sleeping too late, procrastinating, cutting corners. More than once I've looked back on my old self and thought, how did I do that? Our private insecurities will follow us and will always follow us. So what she's lamenting there is a young woman already, she's looking back at her life and saying, man, four years of college just flew by and I botched a lot. She can't look back at her college career and say, behold, it was very good. So then the question becomes, when you look at your life and you say, I can't really say it's good, what do you do? Well, here's what she does. She tries to justify the fact that it wasn't all good. She says to live with regret like that, looking back at your life, is just a cliche that we don't have to live by. Quote, nobody wakes up when they want to. Nobody did all of their reading. We have these impossibly high standards and will probably never live up to our perfect fantasies of our future selves. But I feel like that's okay, she says. Why is it okay? We all have these astronomically high standards for ourselves that we don't live up to. And we look at our lives and we have to say, well, either I'm a terrible wretch because I can't even live up to my own standards, or we have to try to justify it and say, well, it's got to be okay because everybody's the same as me. But see, that nagging sense of guilt that she had and that we have, it's actually meant to point us to something. And that's the fact that we've fallen short of God's standard. It's that we haven't entered into the rest that God has promised because we're not fit on our own to enter into that, that rest. We're missing the mark. What are we supposed to do? And that leads to point three. How can we get the Sabbath right? So for an answer to that, we need to look at Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, which are really a commentary on Psalm 95.11, where God swears not to let the people of Israel enter into his rest. So the author makes some logical deductions in Hebrews 3 and 4. He says, if in Psalm 95, basically, God swore that the people would not enter his rest, then there must still be a rest that can be entered. 
But what stops us from getting it? All right, Hebrews 3.19 says, So we see that they, the people of Israel, were unable to enter it because of unbelief. What stopped them from getting true Sabbath, from getting true rest? His answer is unbelief. And he ties unbelief with disobedience. They go hand in hand together. He's saying the only thing standing between us and rest now isn't our moral failure. It's the failure of faith. It's failing to believe. Now, how can that be? So, Hebrews 4, 9 says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. What on earth does that mean? Well, this is a verse, or a set of verses, Hebrews 4, 9, and 10, that can literally change your life today, if you understand it properly. The word whoever in verse 10 in the ESV is somewhat misleading. All of the verbs and pronouns in this verse are third person, masculine, singular. Well, whoop-de-doo, we're really learning something today, right? What is the most logical, natural translation of a third person, masculine, singular pronoun? Somebody tell me. Third person, masculine, singular. He, that's right. It's he or his. The King James nails it, the translation, when it says, He that entered into his rest, he also had ceased from his works as God did from his. So here's the next logical question we ask of the text. Who's the he? Who's the he it's talking about? I watched a live stream of a service a while back at another church, and they had a children's message uh, during the service. And the leader had a box, and the kids were all around and said, Who wants to guess what's in this box? And the first kid, guess what they yelled out? Jesus! <laughs> no, Jesus wasn't in the box. But Jesus is always a good guess uh, when it comes to the Scriptures. The he that this text is talking about is Jesus Christ. The he who rested from his works as God did from his is Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, look at the next part of Hebrews 4, starting in verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So most people assume that the word of God referenced there in verse 12 is the Bible. But the Greek word is logos, which is a name of Christ, very famously in John 1, in the beginning was the Logos, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And notice the author points us back to creation when he says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So that's kind of pointing us back to Genesis 3, which we're going to look at next week, that all are exposed before him. We cannot hide our sins from him. Like Adam and Eve, we all are underneath the gaze of Christ. Then the author says that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens in our behalf. In light of all that, real quick summary of the main idea of Hebrews 3 and 4. Jesus Christ perfectly kept the covenant of works that Adam failed to keep. He had perfect faith in God. He obeyed his Father perfectly. He could look back at his life. He's the only human being who could ever look back at his life at the end and say, behold, it was very good. Because of this, he earned the right to enter into God's eternal Sabbath. He earned perfect rest. 
But he chose to become our substitute. He chose to take the penalty of our sin. And from Gethsemane to the cross, God swore in his wrath that his own son would not enter into his rest. But after suffering the unrest of the wrath of God, when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, passed through the heavens, as Hebrews 4 says, Christ sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and has entered into the perfect, blessed Sabbath of his Father. And now he says to us, I earned it, and I'm willing to give it to you. It gives entirely, that gives an entirely new meaning to Jesus' words when he says, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you, that's right, I will give you rest. It's not a nap. Right? It's not just a mere physical refreshment. Jesus is saying, I have earned the blessed rest, the everlasting rest of heaven for you. And I've come here now to give it to you. In the midst of a world that Jesus walked into of legalists and Pharisees who were so busy washing the windows that they never looked through it, Jesus stands up and says, it's not work, work, work. It's not be perfect. It's I'm perfect for you and now I offer you my rest. Now I want to finish today just two little applications of this. I want to talk about this doctrine of the Sabbath, of God's eternal repose, now earned by Christ and offered to us. I want to talk about its significance for the Lord's Day, the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, the first day of the week, and its significance for us as individuals. First, for the Lord's Day. And I almost feel like I'm cheating you by not being able to talk about this longer, but I'm going to try to summarize well. Palmer Robertson said it well in Christ of the Covenants, his classic book. There was a Sabbath for the first creation, and now there is a Sabbath for the new creation. In the old world, the first world, so to speak, before the resurrection of Christ, God commanded that the Sabbath be on the last day of the week. It was six days of work and then one day of rest. And Robertson says something so drastically changed with the death and resurrection of Christ that God flipped that script. And the Lord's day is now on the first day of the week rather than the last. This is making a theological statement. And that statement is that we begin our week with not work, but rest. This is the window of the Sabbath that we're meant to look through. Our works flow, our good works, our obedience to God flows out of the fact that we already have rest. We're not working to earn that rest. We're working because we already have it. When we worship and rest on the first day of the week, we're saying life is about, is about what Christ has done for us. This is our window to the world. It's by looking through the window of Christ's work that we see the snow-capped mountains of rest. When we meet on the first day of the week, it isn't just a happenstance of how the calendar falls. It's sticking a flag in the ground and saying, it's not about what we've done, it's about what Christ has done for us. And we rest in that. And on a personal level, St. Augustine said our heart, famously, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O God. The rest that you were created for, the joy, the satisfaction that we all long for. You look, around, look out at the world around us, it's restless. Everybody's looking for rest. And Hebrews 3 and 4 is telling us, in Christ we could find it. We can have it. We can look back at our lives with clean consciences in spite of our sin and say, behold, it is very good, not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done for us and in our behalf. When I stand before God, I know my record is terrible. I've guilt and shame abounds, but it's Christ's record that he's going to judge by. That's what justification by faith is. Because of what Christ has done for us, we're accounted as righteous. And this righteousness is only to be received by faith. We don't have to live 
as balls of anxiety and unrest. We don't have to jump through a million hoops and clean our windows perfectly, hoping that God will somehow like us if we do just enough. Because Jesus says, come to me. That's all. Come to me. And I will give you rest. So what's left for you to do? Hebrews' answer is, strive to enter that rest. And he says, today, if you hear his voice today, don't harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. Strive to enter that rest. You know, I mentioned Marina Keegan earlier. She wrote that essay about her college career and how much of a failure she felt like. And, you know, she said, I'm not perfect. That has to be okay. But another thing she kept saying in that essay was, but we're so young. We're so young. Maybe we can get better. Maybe we can do better. What I found as I get older is it's the exact opposite. Because guilt and shame compounds like interest. And you get guiltier. And you have more and more shame. But she said, we're so young, maybe someday we'll get better. The reason those essays were published, and the reason she's now known, and you can find her books on bookshelves, is because less than a year after her college graduation, at 22 years old, she died in a car wreck. Psalm 95, Hebrews 3, says, Today, today, if you hear Christ's voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the wilderness. Today, right now, he says to you, come to me, all you labor, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Believe. Strive to enter that rest. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that There is rest for the weary. That our souls and our spirits can be refreshed because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. And I pray that today we would experience the deep rest of the soul knowing that as we stand before you on this Lord's day, Jesus paid it all. And all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Lord, we don't have to spend countless hours navel-gazing and washing our windows because we can trust in Christ that He's done everything necessary for our salvation and that now He's granted us the Spirit and that the Spirit is at work in us both to will and to do for God good, God's good pleasure. Help us strive to enter the rest of Christ. For we ask it in His name. Amen. Let's stand together now and sing the first four stanzas of hymn number 358 for all the saints.
You may be seated. Well, we come now to the Lord's table. Uh, this supper is a sacrament of the new covenant instituted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself by example and command as a sacrament. Uh, St. Augustine said that the bread and the cup are visible words. They're meant to show us the gospel, that the Lord Jesus Christ came and lived and bled and died for us, but even more so, there's, it's not just a sign. It's a seal of the covenant of grace that God working through His Spirit accomplishes His spiritual purposes in our lives through this meal. This meal is not intended for those who have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you've not put your faith in Him, if you've not rested and trusted in Christ, as your Savior and Lord, then we'd ask that you let the elements pass by and that you'd refrain from partaking of them. But we'd also encourage you, this very day, repent and believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized for the remission of sins, as the Apostle Peter says in Acts chapter 2. And for those of us who are believers, I'd encourage you uh, to examine your own hearts as you take this meal, but also remember... This is not meant to be simply a memorial. We are not mourning a death. We are celebrating what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us and the fact that he pledges to commune with us by his Spirit even now as we partake of these elements. So examine yourself, repent of your sins, but also rejoice that the Lord Jesus Christ is a Savior for sinners who says, Come to me, all you who are heavy and labor, and I'll give you rest. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we ask by your Holy Spirit now that you would consecrate these common elements, this bread, this cup, that you would consecrate them for a holy use, that we might feed upon the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And so be glorified during this time as we commune with the Lord Jesus Christ by your Spirit. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now the words of institution. On the night on which our Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
the body of Christ for his people. Take and eat. In like manner, after the supper, Jesus Christ took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. And as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. blood of Christ for you. Drink from it, all of you. Let us pray.
Father, thank you that as the Puritans used to call the Lord's Day the market day of the soul. It's a day when Christians came together to stock up spiritually for the groceries that we would need to get us through the week. Lord, you have fed us today on your word and now in your sacrament. So give us strength to live lives that are honoring and glorifying to you in this week to come. And we're thankful as well that we get to come back this evening and worship you again as the body of Christ. Bless us as we leave this place today, and may we glorify and enjoy you forever. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me now, we will sing stanzas 5 and 6 of number 5, 358. Now the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.